welcome back to another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, and with me today is Dr. Brian Regal. And, and it is okay to call you Brian? Yes, of course. Great, great. And you are a professor at – I'm not sure how to pronounce your university – you're a professor I know. I, I, don't, I don't know why, you know, for years uh, I, I – it's Kane. Kane, okay. Because <laughs> it looks uh, like – yeah, because there is a there is a university out there called Keene. Okay. K E E N. I think they have an E on the end of it, but it's, oh, okay. it's Kane Kane University in New Jersey. I'm an associate professor for the history of science, technology, and medicine. Great. Okay. And uh, fans of certain podcasts like um, Squaring the Strange and Monster Talk, they will probably recognize your your name. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally getting a chance to talk about something other than monsters. Right, right. You've become kind of known as the uh, kind of – I mean, just not on podcasts. I'm, I'm guessing that in more in the popular media, are you becoming known as sort of a, the, the, the cryptozoology go-to guy? Yeah, I've, I've, I've written a number of books on fringe topics um, and – Two of my more recent books, one was on uh, – it was called Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology, uh, which, if I may, uh, <laughs> say probably the best history of cryptozoology ever written. Uh, and then after that, I, along with uh, one of my Kane colleagues, Dr. Frank J. Esposito, uh, we wrote the book on the history of the Jersey Devil. Right, right. And the, the book that – um, I guess I shouldn't say working on it now because it's already in the publisher's hands and it's going to be out sometime this year. Uh, tentatively titled Waiting for Columbus uh, about the long history of various myths and legends about who, you know, in parentheses or in quotation marks, really discovered America. Right. Okay. Uh, and so I, 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 get, I, I get sucked up into the fringe uh, vortex quite a bit. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, the, um, uh, the, 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 and I don't want to get too much into the weeds of the Jersey devil, but you, you did a lot of fascinating work there and kind of the, the, the sort of the, the origin story of it. There's a very interesting story there in about, can you kind of summarize that in about two minutes? The, the, the Jersey yeah, devil sure. and the origin story. Sure. Um, well, the, for the, for people who don't know the, uh, the, the myth of the Jersey devil is that, uh, uh, a woman named Mother Leeds uh, gives birth to this sort of deformed creature in the middle of uh, what is known around here as the Pine Barrens, uh, which is sort of the southern half of New Jersey, which, you know, contrary to what most people think of when they think of New Jersey, uh, you know, they think of North Jersey with the with the oil refineries and Springsteen and the Sopranos and the, the big cities and things. Uh, but the southern half of the state is really quite bucolic. Uh, it's a huge pine forest. And so this woman gives birth to supposedly a monster and the monster comes out, runs around uh, for several hundred years, accosting innocent passersby uh, and has this reputation as sort of doing weird things and red glowing eyes and sort of flappy batty wings and, and that sort of thing. And so Frank and I decided because uh, uh, Dr. Esposito, uh, who retired recently, was a, a, a specialist in New Jersey history, was also a specialist in Native American history. 
Uh, and we, so we decided to get together to write a book about it. And we did what historians do. And it, it, it always sort of gives me a little smile mm-hmm. uh, because we just think we're doing what everybody's supposed to be doing. Uh, as historians, we just went out and we started digging through all the primary sources. Uh, and as someone who has spent some time writing about fringe topics like this, uh, I'm always amazed. I shouldn't be anymore, but I'm always amazed at how many writers on the paranormal and cryptozoology and, and conspiracy theories and all this other stuff never go out and look for the primary sources. They 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 basically scoop up a few things on the surface that they find on online or on Wikipedia, and now suddenly they're experts. Uh, but what I've always done, what I've, what I was trained to do as a graduate student was to dig for all this, uh, material, letters, you know, lost books, that kind of thing. And when Frank and I began that project, we didn't think we'd find much of it, but with, with very little effort, we started finding tons of primary sources. And what we found was that the actual story of the Jersey Devil is much more interesting, uh, is much more significant to American history, not just New Jersey history, but but colonial <laughs> American history. Uh, and then it all centered around this guy named D- Daniel Leeds, who was a Quaker who winds up in New Jersey in the late 1600s and decides he wants to do something to make his society a better place. And the way he decides to do this is to start writing almanacs and books uh, where he combines astronomy and mathematics and science and history and, and theology. He's a, he's a Christian, but he believes that astrology is, is a good thing for Christians to be involved in because astrology helps you find out how the universe works. And since God made the universe, that's a good thing to do. Uh, and unfortunately, the whole thing sort of backfires on him, blows up in his face. Uh, and a lot of people come to dislike him because of this. And he starts writing um, anti-Quaker pamphlets and books. And then the Quakers start writing anti-Daniel Leeds books. <laughs> and slowly over time, uh, this guy who was trying to do something good for his society winds up being associated with this legend which over the course of about 200 years uh, evolves from being a kind of political thing into being this very simplistic, uh, you know, monster story of a creature running around the woods. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like uh, where we will slag politicians. We don't like be calling, comparing them to the devil or Satan or the great Satan. And, uh, and I mean, for some people, some people honestly believe like, oh, you know, Obama was Satan. But, you know, for other people, it may be like, it, it, it's a metaphor, you know, they're doing evil. But but it, 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 it's stuck and it caught on and this person has become, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, and the one of the more significant things I think about the story is that, and, and what a lot of people somehow miss, uh, is that the story of the Jersey Devil, in its incarnation at least, is the story of the beginnings of controversial literature in America. Uh, Daniel Leeds is not only the first author 
in New Jersey, but he's the first censored author in New Jersey. And the story includes land grabs and lying about politicians and sort of bare knuckle, uh, you know, political maneuverings right. and hatred of outspoken women is in there. And, you know, so it's a, it, it's a story from the late uh, 17th century, but it fits right into 21st century politics. Yeah, for sure. And I will say, if you want to know more, first, uh, find your book, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, right? Uh, and that's, uh, that's available on Amazon, I would imagine. Yeah, it's in a, it, and it's, uh, it's been out as a paperback for a while. So it's a little less expensive. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And you can also, again, go on Monster Talk and uh, back, uh, I believe, uh, Squaring the Strange, right? You've, you've been on there. Yeah, I, I've, I've been on, since I started doing this stuff, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I've been on uh, quite a few. My my CV has like almost three pages just of podcast appearances. So right, right, yeah. it's fun. It's good. Yeah. And, and I, I started following you on Twitter and you started, uh, I mean, you've been posting a lot of pictures of, you know, your, 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 your misspent youth where you, uh, you were literally on the front lines of the Cold War, were you not? Yes, I was. I, a, a couple of years ago, um, I got this idea to um, write my memoirs, right, right. which that sentence alone sounds so intensely pompous, you know, but <clears throat> I, I sat down and started doing it. And, um, uh, Benjamin Radford, who you, know, you may be familiar with, oh, yeah. uh, he, I, and he knows this cause I told him this. I said, dude, this is all your fault. Uh, because one time this was like three, four years ago, I was, I was telling some sort of weird anecdote about my life and he's like, man, I can't wait to read your autobiography. Uh, so I sat down to write it <clears throat> and I finished it recently. And so I've been, I've been, uh, you know, thinking about that. And so stuff get, has gotten out of my head and onto, onto, uh, the, onto social media. I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not, but there we are. Right. But you were, uh, now, now wiki has you as a, uh, you're a, a Tank commander, but I believe you you you, you were tank driver, and I don't know. Well, I'm assuming. <clears throat> sure. Go ahead. It, it, um, I began as a tank driver. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. You, get, you know, you get promoted up to the right. So, okay. Yeah, I was a doggy, uh, which is okay. what we call tank crews back. Then. I don't know if they still call them. If anybody's out there knows that they right. still use that expression. Uh, but you know, every every job in the U.S. military, and probably every military around the world, uh, has nicknames for different jobs, like. Uh, infantry are ground pounders. Right, right. Uh, artillery are cannon cockers, and uh, mechanics are monkey wrenches. Right, and, right. And crews are either treadheads or doggies. No, oh, okay, right. And uh, so you were. Uh, what? What? what you, where were you stationed in Europe? And 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 what? What year? Uh, I was in the Bamberg garrison, which is in Bavaria. Okay. And uh, that was from 1978 to 1980. Wow. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So you were kind of. I mean, to me, the. I mean, the Cold War. You know, Reagan eighty one. Uh, uh, you know, my memory because I'm I'm fifty five, so I definitely have you know lived through most of the Cold War. I would imagine, uh, but uh, but but yeah. It, I mean, during the Reagan eighties, that's when it kind of really heated up. But you were definitely, you were definitely there on the front lines, and, and that's what I kind of want you to come on to talk about because this is sort of fascinating because. There are, I don't know how many generations of people are below us at this point, but there are 
definitely multiple generations that did not live through the Cold War. Sure. Yeah. Let me. Yeah, let I me, teach. Okay. Uh, just uh, one one quick thing. I I at Kane, uh, I teach two sections of our right. our basic introduction to history course. Uh, HIST 1062, which is a general education course, which means every student has to take it regardless of what their major is. Uh, and if I'm lucky, you know, you, you have to try to squeeze all of human history into, <laughs> into 15 weeks. Uh, and if I'm lucky, I get to the Cold War. That's about as far as I can usually get. I, uh, just, just because of time restraints, I, I usually can't get past that. Uh, but while I'm talking about, it, I use PowerPoint a lot, and I use slides and maps and things. Um, and towards the end, there I'll slip in a picture uh, of the Iron Curtain uh, with me in it, and just to see if anybody recognizes it. And every once in a while, they don't always. Uh, but every once in a while, you know, a student will sort of tentatively put their hand up in the back of the classroom and say, "Is it?" Is that you in that picture? <laughs> how old are you? <laughs> how old? How old were you? Was I? Yeah, yeah. Back, back. Then. Oh, at the time I was eighteen. Right. Okay. Cool. All right then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to the service right out of high school. I was. Um, I was my 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 parents. You know, wanted me to do well and, <laughs> and go on to college and things, um, but nobody else thought I should. Right. Uh, certainly my teachers, uh, you know, I had a, I had a guidance counselor in high school who, who, when I said I wanted to go to college to become right. a historian and a writer, uh, told me kids like you don't go to college. Right. What, what do they mean by that exactly? Which, which is, which is always, yeah. which is always <laughs> the encouragement you want to get from your high school. Guidance no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a, I, I went to Catholic grammar school and right. uh, one of the nuns, in front of my class, told okay. me that she thought I was brain damaged. <laughs> so I was not exactly on the fast track to a Pulitzer, uh, you know. Oh, uh, uh, but I wanted to. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be right, okay. a historian. I wanted to go and have a life of adventuring. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and I know that can sound sort of weird and cliched today. Uh, but that's what I wanted. I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be Johnny Quest. I wanted to be one of the Thunderbirds. Right. Uh, and I realized it was made clear to me I wasn't going to go the college route. Uh, and so a friend of mine, whose name I won't say, uh, said to me one day at lunch, uh, come on with me. I'm going down to the recruiting office. I'm, I'm going to enlist in the Rangers. Okay. And I thought, okay, I'll go with you. So we went and we went to see the, the, the recruiting sergeant and they showed him – ha, he had one of these little, very early portable video players. Oh, OK. Uh, this was like 1977 and showed this little five-minute video on how great it is to be a ranger, you know, in the little boats and, you know, camouflage and the whole bit. Uh, and so we're finished and the guy – turns to me and he says, well, now what do you want to do? Uh, and I was just like being the come along guy, you know? And uh, I said, well, I, you know, my dad drove a tank in the war in Korea and I like to build model tanks. He goes, oh, well, I got a video to show you. And so he shows me this vi promotional video for the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and their experiences in Vietnam. 
And by the time it was done, it's like five minutes long. By the time it was done, I was signing enlistment papers. No, that's great. And okay. my friend, of course, never did. Uh, we left. He never signed up. I signed up. But uh, yeah, so that's how I, I figured. Uh, I'm. Uh, everybody tells me I'm not smart enough to do this thing I really want to do. Right. So I'll uh, I'll take Uncle Sam's dollar and I'll go off see the world and go investing that way. Yeah, I mean writers, writers, very rare. Good writers very rarely come out of English departments. They come out of life, right? They don't come out of. A- yeah, I, 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 I'm always. Um, I see people a lot on social media talking about they're taking a writing class, and and I, I don't want to be discouraging. I don't want to be a jerk about it, but I always, I, I always want to say, but I never do. That you know, save your money. Don't take that writing class. Buy yourself a pad of paper, or today a laptop, and start writing. That's how you become a writer. Yeah, I, I remember seeing uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, back in the '80s. He gave a talk in Detroit, and uh, yeah, he said that when when he was a like a uh, writer in residence. Uh, he, whenever, you know, uh, some writing contest came across his desk, he would make a photocopy of it and he'd put it up in like the boiler room and the uh, geography department and, you know, the math department. And, and cause he's, he's, he's like, yeah, writers. Yeah. That was his line. You know, writers don't come out of English departments. They come out of right all these different fields, but, but yeah, but um, yeah. So, so um, getting back to the cold war topic, now I'm going to throw this out there. This is my pet uh, hypothesis that the Cold War was started by Canada in 1946, the Grisenko affair, and then it was ended by Canada in 1990 when McDonald's Canada raised the Golden Arches over Moscow. So uh, where, where's the flaw in my theory? Uh, I don't think there is one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a it's an important question, you know. How did, how does this thing get started? <laughs> what I always tell students is, and 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 this is obviously a little overly simplistic, um, but the the Cold War begins at the end of World War II, maybe even in the closing days of World War II, because neither the Russians nor the Anglo Americans trusted each other, <laughs> and both sides thought. Rightly or wrongly, I mean, we can debate debate whether this was this was an accurate um, idea, but both sides thought the other side was out to get them and would do things that on their side seemed well, we're just defending ourselves. You know, we just want we just don't want anything to happen to us. But the other side would see that as the other side getting prepared to to attack them. So they would do things in return. And then you could have people on the other side say, ah, you see, they're doing this and they're doing that. That's why they're getting ready to go after us. And then it just keeps escalating. I call that the landlord tenant 
spiral where, you know, a landlord has been screwed by a tenant and a tenant has been screwed by a landlord. And then they just, they, they respond to each, you know. Sure. Cause you can't so, trust the other side. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess it happens in the cold war. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, so Grisenko affair, what, what, what was the Grisenko affair? How did that kind of really blow up the, the cold war um, into popular? I, 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 yeah, I, I am embarrassed to say this as a historian. Okay. I have no idea. Okay. Well, I'll jump in briefly because you've been Canadian. This is a this is a big part of Canadian history. Yeah, basically, Grizenko was a uh, like a cipher clerk at uh, uh, I believe the Moscow Embassy in Ottawa, and you know, kind of basically, he wanted to defect, so he uh, you know he kind of grabbed all this evidence that the you know the Soviet Union was spying on the West and then uh, turned himself into, you know, Canadian government. And, and I think he was treated a bit as kind of a, a, a nutbag at first, but eventually mm-hmm. they did come. Yeah. Which this does happen. Eventually they sort of came around and, and I, I, I think, I think too, that, that, you know, North America kind of knew that the, you know, the, the Russians are kind of spying on us, but it was never really, public until the Grisenko affair kind of blew up and then 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 you know they had to sort of come to you know sort of brass tacks and go yeah this this alliance we had forged at the end of world war ii is dead and we are now you know facing each other off yeah well that was not an uncommon scenario on both sides Uh, you know you you had people who uh, i mean they're there, there's a guy in deep inside the Manhattan Project, and there are guys deep inside British intelligence who think that you know the the real enemy in the world is fascism, and who is doing the most to fight fascism? It's the Soviets. So if our government won't give them the Soviets this information to help fight fascism, maybe we will. Uh, and, and again, you know, in, in the hindsight of, excuse me, of 2022, we can argue whether or not they were, you know, uh, they had blinded themselves or deluded themselves or, or whether they were really committed to this or not. But that's part of the, uh, motivation, and then of course there's the guys who just wanted money. Uh, yeah, I got this thing over here. I'm not supposed to give it to you. You're <laughs> supposed to know about it. But if you give me enough money, I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you a copy. <laughs> money money is definitely a mo- a motivator for for sure. Yeah. And uh, what, when you were um, so uh, you were uh, Bavaria, you're you're 18 years old in Germany. Now I imagine, especially in the late 70s. Not a lot of young Americans were, were getting over to uh, to Germany, Western Europe in the in the nineteen seventies. I mean, was this what was your what was what do you think? Uh, well, I had a I, I went over there for adventure, right? Um, you know, when when students find out that that I served, they say, "Oh man, you must have been so patriotic." And not really. <laughs> That was really, you know, if you if you if if I wrote up a list of ten reasons why I joined the army, right, patriotism would have been number twelve, right, right. on the list of ten. 
Uh, and I had nothing to do with my reasons for, for enlisting. I wanted to, I was Toby Tyler joining the circus. Right. Uh, if anybody remembers that movie with Kurt Russell was like 12 and he was Toby <laughs> Tyler and he runs away from home to join the circus. And that's basically what I did. Uh, and not as far as I know, nobody in my graduating high school class uh, of which I graduated at the bottom of uh, went a couple of, a couple of kids I knew enlisted a year or two later. Uh, but I don't know if any of them came over, you know, went went outside the U S I, you know, when, when I enlisted and the, um, the recruiters said, Oh, you know, if you, if you take, you're interested in going into armor and the armor cavalry uh, that's combat arms if you agreed to go an extra year, we give you this cash bonus. And I think that's cash bonus. That sounds good. Uh, and, so, and they said, oh, yeah. And the other thing you get is you get to choose your first duty station. Okay. And so I thought about it uh, and I wanted to go to China mm-hmm. because it just seemed like the furthest place away. <laughs> uh, and the recruiter says, you can't go to China. We don't have troops in China. Uh, and I, I, I spoke to my dad about it and he said, whatever you do, do not volunteer to go to Korea okay. because he had fought in the war. And so I, 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 uh, I said to the recruiter, okay, well, if I can't go to, can't go to China, don't want to go to Korea. Where's the furthest place right, right. I want to serve here in the States. I want to serve overseas. Where's the furthest place from here? And he said, well, we can send you to Germany. Uh, that's right up there. And, um, uh, I, I don't know if I, you can, I guess you're, you're going to be editing this. So I'll mm-hmm. say this and you edit it out whether you, whether you think it's appropriate or not, or whether it's really insulting. But one of the, one of the enticements that the recruiter says, oh, is, no. you know, if you, if you go to Germany, they got the, the chicks over there are hot. They all got huge and have a great time. Uh, and I, you know, I said, okay, where's the, where's that paperwork? Uh, that's how I went. Yeah. I was 18 and naive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I literally said, and it sort of makes me cringe now to even think of it. I literally said to the guy, I want to go to where the action is. Right. And he said, well, the action is the iron curtain. And I said, okay, send me to the iron curtain. And there uh, you go. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to be clear, that was a very different time. We would never <laughs> I, I I don't know if they recruit like that anymore, but uh, but uh, you know, we we do we, it was a period of, in time. <laughs> we do we do not support those that kind of talk and attitude to, 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 today. But yeah, so, yeah. so so you edit that out, I understand. I won't No no no. I mean, you know, in, in you know sleep on it, let me know. But but it's 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 again that's just sort of you know that that was it was 1978. There was a certain line of thinking, and uh, yeah. I, I, you, it was a M60 tank. Is that what you? M60A1 Rise Passive. Okay, which means nothing to anybody today. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I know the M60A1, but it, uh, what what were you up against in 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 terms of like the the, the Soviet armor? What was there? Oh, we of- were up against. We trained uh, against the T72. Okay. And right. as I was leaving the T ninety two, I think was okay. coming into production. Okay. Um, 
and all of them, all, all of them look sort of the same. Right, right. Low, very much in that the T fifty five frying pan, inverted frying pan mm-hmm. um, style with the big road wheels, and the by the T seventy two that chain, you know, the upgrade. Uh, visually, the upgrade is what it, it got shorter and shorter, mm-hmm. uh, and the T ninety two. Uh, was even shorter. I mean, you could almost stand next to one of these things and look over the top of it. Right. Their, their idea was the lower, the better. A low target is harder to see. A low target is harder to hit. Meanwhile, the M60 was 14 stories tall because yeah. had this, you know, this, this huge chassis, this big fat turret, and then a commander's cupola on top of that. Uh, and so they were, they were, they were kind of on the tall side. Right. Yeah. I, did, did would you have stood a chance against uh, uh, what the Soviets could could? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, when we were there, we were told, and and we were told this explicitly. It, it, it wasn't something that was hinted at, or you know, you know, don't don't tell anybody else. But this is a um, when I first arrived <laughs> in Germany after basic training. After AIT, well, my 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 basic training. Most people who go into the U.S. military, when we talk about boot camp or basic training, it's like an initial six or seven weeks where you learn really just the most basic aspects of how to be a soldier, how to wear your uniform and salute and do all that stuff. Um, but because of the particular job uh, that I had. Um, they instead of doing it separately, instead of doing basic training, graduating, then being sent off to some special school, uh, the the in armor they just squeezed the whole thing into one. Right. Uh, so it was like sixteen weeks, same drill sergeant screaming at you every day, uh, and so once you were actually done, <clears throat> they you gave, they gave you a couple of weeks of vacation, and then they shipped you out to wherever it is you had agreed to go. So I was going to well, I was going to West Germany, uh, and so you know I wind up in Bamberg uh, with the three three five, the third of the thirty fifth armored armored regiment, uh, which was part of the first armored division. So I wore a first armored division shoulder patch, and they they put me in A company, and uh, a couple of days after I'm there, the CO calls me and a couple of other the newbies who showed up at the same time into his office. And he starts to explain to us why we are here. And he said, we are here. And at first, because this is sort of the, you know, after the years I spent in the service, I'm still, I I can still be a bit irreverent and I I have trouble taking certain things seriously. And when he started telling us this, I thought he was making a joke. (laughs) And then very quickly, I realized he's not making a joke. He's serious. He says, our, our, the reason we're here is to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our job is tank driving, and our world is the end of the world. And we are here to fight the end of the world. We're, we're not going to survive it. Somebody else will survive it, but it's not our job to do that. Because the view within the West, in NATO, um, was that, the way this would happen is that the Russians would just come steamrolling across the border, 
in huge numbers. And, you know, as they are uh, on their way to the French coast or on their way to Spain or whatever. And we would basically throw ourselves under this juggernaut, <laughs> not to stop them, which was considered pretty much, you know, an unrealistic uh, idea, but to slow them down just long enough for this process called reforger to kick in. Uh, reforger was reinforcements to Germany or return, uh, return to Germany, return of forces to Germany. And that was, should the balloon go up, the war starts, uh, all these units in the States and in Canada and in England and probably Australia as well, uh, they would mobilize and they would come over and they would be the ones to actually stop the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Uh, we were there just really to slow them down as much as we could uh, because we knew that all of our barracks were already pre-targeted by nukes and rockets and things. Uh, and so one of the things we practiced, what we called alerts, uh, was getting out of the barracks, getting out of the track park as fast as possible. Because mm -hmm. if you hesitated, uh, the whole place was going to be vaporized. And so we practiced quite a bit on getting out of the track park and off into an assembly area uh, as quickly as we could. Uh, and then presumably we would watch from behind as the mushroom cloud arise over Bamberg. Uh, and so, you know, we carried live ammunition on the vehicles 24 hours a day. Uh, all our stuff was kept there. Uh, and, you know, we had, we had uh, positions picked out for us already that we were supposed to move to. And, because Bamberg was on, I think it was Highway 22, somebody could double check that, which ran towards Czechoslovakia. And our, our plan was basically to come out, to get out of the garrison. Uh, we would move about 10 miles down Route 22, uh, stop and wait for this tsunami of Russian tanks to come at us. And we would get in a few good punches, you know, uh, and before the last of us were shot to pieces and whoever didn't die would drown in a sea of, of, of radioactive blood. And that would be pretty much it. The end. Now, at, at, at 18, uh, how, did yeah, your process, yeah. how did your brain process that? Like, was it, was it all just theoretical and academic or, you know, or were there, were there yeah, moments? Yeah, surprisingly it was. I mean, I, I don't think I ever lost a night's sleep over it. I don't think anybody did. Right. Uh, you know, we were, we were all young. I mean, my, my first sergeant, who seemed elderly to me, was probably 35, you know, maybe, maybe 35. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, we knew what was going to happen because everyone's telling you this, you know, this is the way we trained. Uh, we, we road marched relentlessly, you know, in all weather all year long. Uh, we, we went out on exercises that lasted two, three weeks at a time and just practicing to fight the Soviets. That's really all we did. Uh, and, but, but for some reason, we never really, uh, I never lost a minute's sleep over it. And, and, and I too, <laughs> looking back on, I'm 61 now, uh, looking back on it, I still sometimes think, why was I not 
scared out of my wits over this uh, because this was not one of the things I often have trouble conveying to people when they ask me about this. This was not a theoretical concept. Nobody thought of it that way. This was going to happen. The Soviets are going to invade Western Europe. They're going to try to destroy NATO. You know, all they're going to try to take over the world, yada, yada, yada. It wasn't a question of, are they going to do it? The question is, when were they going to do it? And it, it, it was just this part of your everyday existence. And I guess, you know, familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, and, not, and not only did we not really fear this, but we thought, you know, we can't wait till they do this because we're going to kick their asses. Uh, bring, bring it on, Ivan. You know, we're, <laughs> we'll show you, you know, not only are we not going to die, but you're, we're going to kill you when you try to do this. So get on with it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was very strange uh, at the time living. It wasn't didn't didn't seem strange. It seems strange to me now that we had these attitudes. Now, I'm sure there were people up at the higher echelons and I'm sure our parents uh, were worried about this, uh, but we never really thought about it much. Wow. Because I, I mean, I entered high school, I think it would have been 19. 19- 80 and I was probably 13 or 14 grade nine or uh, ninth grade. I think you would call it there, but um, yeah, I, I, I try to tell, you know, the young kids today, I'm like, like there was a period of your life where probably about every 20 minutes you reminded yourself that, you know, we're, we could be all be dead in, in the next 20 minutes, you know, that we were constantly thinking about nuclear Holocaust, sure. especially when, mm-hmm. especially after, after the day after, I mean, I was better read. So the day after was, was, it was like, it's, it's like reading, uh, you know, Sagan's, uh, what Sagan's book, like, uh, was it candle in the dark or, Sagan's kind of skeptical book. He came out with a skeptical book in the nineties that everyone's like, this is the greatest skeptical book ever. But if you, if you've been in skepticism, it's kind of like, it was, it was kind of the greatest hits, but, but now when I go back and read it, I'm like, yeah, that's a great book. But, but yeah, yeah. But when day after sort of came out, I mean, being kind of that nerdy grade nine kid, you know, well read, it, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a, just a bit of a, a, a refresher for me, but it just freaked people out to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I went to, I went to a Catholic grammar school in Kearney, New Jersey, St. Cecilia's. Um, and when you went in the front door, the, the main doors into the school, there was one of those Blakely symbols over right. the door, you know, the black and orange with the triangle that says fallout shelter on it. Yeah. Um, and St. Cecilia's was a designated fallout shelter as most public buildings were at the time. And, uh, so we practiced, we, we actually, my, I think I may have been one of the last, uh, kids to do duck and cover. Oh yeah. Okay. That had kind of gone out of fashion a little bit, but I guess the Catholic church was still hanging on to it. Uh, and so we would do duck and covered. We would practice getting up, uh, you know, and marching down into the basement and they kept uh, civil defense supplies. It was a room full of civil defense supplies there. 
the the school janitor who everyone called Mr. Fix. Now, I don't know whether that was his actual name or whether everyone called him that because he was the janitor. There's one old guy uh, and he had a he had a locker in like a gym locker downstairs uh, that I snuck into once because, you know, don't leave a locker unlocked in front of a sixth grader and not expect him to open the door and go see what's inside. And uh, he had his civil defense uniform, which was. You know, the shoulder harness, web belt, uh, white sort of World War One style dishpan helmet painted white with the, yeah, the yeah. full defense symbol on the front of it. And I am not making this up. Uh, an honest to God M1903 Springfield battle rifle. No way. Like the kind that Sergeant York carried right. <laughs> uh, with one of those really long bayonets on it. And I, I suppose that it was his job should the Holocaust begin. Uh, and we all came in and were cowering in the basement. He was supposed to keep us in line and then protect us from marauding bands of adults who were going to try to come in and steal the food. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, you know, we, this is what we were supposed to do. And we would, we would live in the basement for, for a little while and consume this government issued food. Uh, and when it was over, uh, we would we would come out and we would rebuild society uh, and you know survive by living off the 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 rotting radioactive flesh of the dead I assume uh, and that's how life would go on but that was part of our you know so the the and you know because it was a Catholic school so the nuns were always telling us if you behave badly Jesus was going to send you to hell forever so we, were, we were, I grew up thinking I was either going to die in hellfire because of I, you know, I was running in the halls or something, or I was going to melt in the, in a, in a nuclear Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, um, thanks adults. <laughs> Did, um, when, when you were, uh, certainly in Germany, I mean, were there any times where like you thought, well, this is, this is, this is happening. Where, yeah. Once or twice. Um, we used to do, practice alerts all the time, mm-hmm. you know, 3 a.m. Boom. The sirens go off. The lights come on and everybody's got to pile out of bed and, you know, get up to the track park and get the tank ready to go and all that sort of thing. Uh, most of the time you knew they were coming ahead of time because they were, you, you know, they were practice scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also would interspace them with ones that they didn't tell you about ahead of time. Um and then in the time I was there, there was there were two that had a very different feel to them. I mean, even the unannounced ones, um, there was a certain – I'm not sure what to call it a, – a certain feeling that it was a practice, you know, um, for someday when you would actually be doing it for real. But there were a couple occasions where we were rolled out and it, it – had a f- seriousness, serious feel to it that the other ones didn't, and that we actually didn't just go to the track park and get ready. We pulled out of the track park and we moved off post and we went to our forward positions. And there were ammunition trucks and there were and there were fuel trucks and n- none of the none of the battalion hierarchy 
were smiling or joking or looking like they were having a good time or would rather be home in bed. Uh, now they, they would never tell you mm-hmm. that, Oh, Oh yeah. And by the way, <laughs> we, were, we were about an hour away from oblivion uh, this morning. Uh, uh, I guess they didn't want people writing home and saying, uh, you know, dear mom and dad uh, sidestepped Armageddon yesterday. Uh, you know, because then obviously it probably would have got spread around and, and then people got to explain. Uh, but there were a couple of times I, I, you, you got the feeling that this was more than just a usual exercise, that this might actually really be something to worry about. Were, were there any, um, I, among your, your fellow tank crew or, or soldiers, were there any interesting myths you, you told each other? I mean, I'm not necessarily about like, you know, like, you know, hey, the, you know, if you go to this PX, you can get better towels or something. But, the, but you know, about uh, what you're facing or anything like that. Um, no, no, again, not really. This is this is really one of the weird parts about it. We, you know, we. The two things. Uh, and again, this might in 2022 might. Well, not might, but is a little political politically incorrect because in a I was in a combat brigade so we had and 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 it was the it was what they called an infantry heavy brigade which meant the three battalions that made up the brigade two were infantry one was armor uh and so very few we had some uh, we had some women in, uh, up at the at the core and divisional level uh, but but down where I was, there simply were no American soldiers who were female. Right, right. Um, you know, so it's a very male, very testosterone-heavy environment. Right. And all we – the only two things – the two things we thought the most about, buying cheap stereo equipment and finding a German girl. Yeah. <laughs> That was, that was pretty much it. That's what occupied our time the most was, you know, because you could, you could buy, because at the time, uh, the, the exchange rate mm-hmm. between the dollar and the Deutschmark, uh, you know, this is way before the Euro, uh, between the dollar and the Deutschmark was, was ridiculously offset. So for every dollar, you got six Deutschmarks. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I wound up buying, a, a, a huge stereo rig, you know, with the uh, of a kind that nobody even I don't think anybody even cares about anymore, where you had a separate amp and a separate receiver and a separate double headed tape deck and a separate turn, you know, direct drive turntable and all that sort of stuff, uh, which probably means nothing to anybody. Very few people listening now. Uh, but I think I spent five hundred dollars on it. If I had bought that same exact set up in the States probably would have cost me 2000. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my, my brother-in-law, he served with the Canadian forces in Germany. Uh, it, it would have been the early eighties. Uh, well, I think we probably were operating like leopard ones back then. We're probably uh-huh. still, we're probably still operating leopard ones as far as I know. If, if, we have parts and fuel for it, but that's another matter. But uh, yeah, I, I believe uh, he, um, if I recall, 
he did not buy a Porsche. He purchased a Porsche engine, shipped uh-huh. it back, and then put it in a uh, VW Bug. He, he's a wonderful nice. man. He, nice. I'm, painting, I'm painting a certain picture, but he's a wonderful. He's a wonderful man. But uh, but when man, when I first met him, and like that was his ride. You know, I'm like. Again, I'm just this nerdy university student radio, student newspaper kind of nerd. And I'm like meeting this guy who's putting a Porsche engine in the VW bug. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I knew guys who, who bought cars, who bought Mercedes, brand new Mercedes, you know, um, and had it shipped home right. and still paid less for it yeah. if they bought it in the States. Uh, I knew a sergeant who bought had his had his father buy a brand new Camaro, but over to West Germany to sell it, and they all made money <laughs> because you know the, uh, exotic American hot rod right off the factory room floor, uh, and it, it when he got it he drove it around a little bit to show off. Uh, and then he put it up for sale, and it took about thirty seconds uh, before uh, Germans were were having a bidding war to get it. Wow! How how was the, how was the food? It was army food. You know, uh, you could go. You, it, as long as you weren't on duty, you mm-hmm. could go off the post and go into the out into the community. Right, right. The 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 barracks, and this was typical of all of them, was in town. Mm-hmm. And so the minute you step, you took one step out of the gate, you were in Bamberg, you were in the city. Right. Uh, and so you could go to restaurants and, you know, I, 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 I because Bamberg wasn't, Bamberg su- survived World War II more intact than the northern German cities because the, 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 the southern cities didn't get bombed as much uh, during the war. And so there was still there were still medieval parts of Bamberg. Uh, and so I, you know, as a budding historian, I, uh, I would go walking around, you know, t- spend my time walking around downtown. And if you had a little smattering of German, you could, you know, you could get a meal without too much trouble or, you know, buy some books or things. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was, you could do a lot if you, as long as you weren't on duty. Right. We're uh, we're recording this um, for future generations. If you're still there, uh, we are recording this. Uh, I guess it's February fourteenth. Happy, happy Valentine's, by the way. Uh, but um, the uh, as we're recording this, it, it, there's you know threats of uh, Russia invading Ukraine, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, what, what what's your take on that? Uh, uh, well, you know. You have you have a guy in charge of Russia today who was a KGB agent, you know, was always a KGB agent, was always a hardcore communist. Um, and I guess, you know, he wants his chance to be Stalin, I, I suppose. I mean, right. um, and uh, the easiest way to do that, I guess, is to is to to get the West nervous. Uh, and you know, Ukraine has a long, not always happy relationship with Russia. 
at times it's been part of it at times, not part of it. You know, when, when the, when world war two begins and the Nazis roll into the Ukraine, uh, large numbers of Ukrainians join the Nazis without a second thought, not so much because they love Nazism, but because they saw Nazism, that was something against the Soviets and they, and you know, they had spent their lives being oppressed by the Soviets. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really complicated interaction of, 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 of people. Uh, and so, you know, the, they're, they're sending U.S. troops over there. They're, they're probably sending troops from other parts of NATO over there. Um, and, you know, I hope it all works out well. I hope the Ukrainians can retain their freedom. Uh, and I hope, you know, World War III doesn't break out. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. We'll, we'll have to see. We'll hope. I'm, I'm glad that there is – a certain man president of the United States right now, rather than another certain man being president. Because if that other person was president, I think this thing would be playing out very differently uh, for the, for the, for the negative. Right. Right. Um, So, you know, we all, we all, I have nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. Most of us have no way to influence this one way or another. Right. And all we can really do, uh, much like the original Cold War, is kind of hang on mm-hmm. and, and hope cooler heads prevail. Right, yes. The uh, um, Queen had a wonderful song, called Waiting for the Hammer to Fall. And there's, there's a line in there. Uh, I just love that it goes something like we who grew up tall and proud in the shadow of the mushroom cloud. And, um, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously we're not part of the, you know, what they call it, the greatest generation, the world war two generation. There's something to be said though, that, that we as a people have, you know, as our generation really did grow up with every day, having to deal with our end, you know, uh, and it, it could come, within minutes and for reasons we could never fathom it could just be an accident and, and sure. um, yeah how how did, how how do you think that maybe altered your psychology or your approach to 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 life oh well i i became a political animal because of my experiences over there i i was never very political uh my dad was a nixon republican uh, although the, the the Watergate scandal soured my dad on on um, on Nixon and the Republicans, uh, and the other thing that kind of soured him was the fact that as I got older, Vietnam kept going and kept going and kept going, and I kept getting older, and I was getting closer to a point where I might get drafted. And sent to Vietnam, and you know, uh, we, the collective we, um, can have very strong opinions about stuff in the abstract. Although for my dad, it wasn't abstract because he fought in Korea, uh, and he saw a huge uh, a- amount of action in Korea uh, to the point where he could he couldn't really talk about it. Um, which is not unusual for people who have those experiences, whether it's Korea or Vietnam or World War II or whatever. Um, and 
the idea that his son, that is me, might have to go over there, suddenly stemming the tide of communism didn't seem like all that attractive an idea. Right, right. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, when in 1977, you know, which is just a few years after, after the U.S. involvement in Vietnam ends, for me to march into the living room and say, I'm going to solve all of our problems. <laughs> you know, hey, you guys, you're not going to have to worry about paying for my college because I'm not going to college. I'm enlisting in the army. Right. <laughs> you know, you talk about needle scratch sound, right. the whole place coming to a dead stop. Uh, he did not want me to join um, for those reasons. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I ex- tried to explain to him, and I guess at some point he just realized that he had to let me do it, let me go off on my own. I was so convinced to do this, and so, you know, he, he gave me my blessing, and, uh, you know, off I went, and he supported me. Yeah, I know my, my and sister. He was, and he was okay. very glad when I came home for the final time. Right, yeah. You know, my enlistment was over. You know, you know, my sister, her, uh, she, uh, her, her son, my nephew, uh, he, he followed his, his dad's footsteps and, you know, joined the army. And, uh, and, but she was sort of like, you, you know, you are not going to do that. Cause yeah, yeah. It's, 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 I think it's a different thing when you are a parent and, you know, a, you, you have a child to worry about and it, it yeah, it, it can, it can be tough. I just want to ask you one sort of final question before I let you go. You've been very generous with your, 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 your time. Oh, we can go longer if you want. I don't care. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm home today. <laughs> okay. I, know, yeah. I, I, I work, yeah. I work from home and in, in software. It's, you know, just whatever, just here's your deadline. Just, figure it out but uh yeah i was gonna say the um it, it kind of in you know decades have passed and the you know soviet union has opened up and we know a lot more uh what were what were some things do you think you or the military planning was wrong about and what were some things you think people got dead right about uh say like the soviet union their intentions their ability to fight a war uh well i had one of the things that helped birth my political awareness, I guess, to if that's the best way to explain it. Um, as a kid, everything told me the Soviets are evil. Communism is evil. They just want to come here and destroy our freedoms and, and ruin our country and kill your mom and your dog and all that. Everything that I saw in pop culture reinforced that uh, science fiction movies, um, James Bond movies, you know, even Johnny quest had as this kind of sometimes prominent, sometimes less so background of the cold war of the, of the East versus West. And uh, I was constantly being told that they were the bad guys. We were the good guys. And if they took over, you know, they would do terrible things and we wouldn't be free anymore, uh, you know. And, and as a kid, it goes in one ear and out the other. And, but when I got over there, when I was actually on the ground, on the, you know, my, the, my unit's primary job was not to be on the Iron Curtain. Uh, 
there was a there was a cavalry outfit across the street from us, the second of the second. Their primary job was to patrol the border constantly. When they didn't do that, when they went off to like gunnery practice or a field exercise or something, the 335 would fill in for them. And so that's how I, we wound up. I wound up being on the Iron Curtain a couple of times, you know, literally physically standing. And I have pictures, you know, uh, and we would see the guys on the other side. And it always made me question, really, these are the boogeymen we're supposed to be afraid of? Uh, I'm in a brand new uniform. I just got paid. Mm -hmm. I got a pocket full of cash I can't spend because, you know, we're we're on duty right now. Uh, And these guys, their uniforms seemed a little shabby. Their vehicles seemed a little clunky. Um, and I, I don't know, that that might have been part of some grand scheme to lull us into complacency right, right. by, you know, to get us to think, wow, these, these guys can't even get their Jeep to run. They're going to take over the world. Right. Uh, and I've seeing that made me feel like I had been lied to <laughs> that a lot of this stuff was just propaganda made to get me willing to throw myself, uh, you know, me and my tank and my, my platoon and my company and my battalion to throw ourselves at the Soviets uh, and happily sacrifice our lives. Um, And I'm sure there were people, you know, in the higher up in the Kremlin and the, you know, the, the real decision-making apparatus of the Soviet union who wanted to destroy NATO, wanted to destroy the West and, and all of that. But the guys on the ground, my sort of counterpart on the other side of the wall, and it wasn't really a wall. The whole, that's that's one of the mythologies about the, you know, the Iron Curtain, right, right. You know, the Berlin Wall. I, I wasn't in Berlin, but, you know, the Iron Curtain, and people have this image of this, like, massive thing with concrete and barbed wire and the minefields and the and the ravenous dogs and all that and there were places where it was exactly like that uh but there were a lot of places where the the border was basically a traffic cone (laughs) (laughs) with a black line painted over on the top and if you were on this side of the line you were in west germany and if you were on that side of the line you were in east germany uh, and so, you know, we looked at these guys and, and I, I almost felt bad for them. You know, we would interact with them on occasion, which we were not allowed to do. I mean, we were strictly prohibited. Every time we went up to border duty, we were told, don't even talk to the guys on the other side. And of course we ignored all that. <laughs> uh, and we would speak to them, you know, we'd sit there, chit chat, have some lunch, exchange rations. They loved American military sea rations. We hated them. Uh, you know, we would exchange like caps or pins or, you know, rank, uh, you know, insignia to take home as, as souvenirs. Uh, and, you know, if, if the guys in your little group could speak a little smattering of German and some of the guys in that, and the other group could speak a little smattering of English, you could have a conversation. Uh, and I thought, you know, these guys don't, hate me. Mm -hmm. I don't hate them. 
uh, they don't want to, you know, kill my mom and rape my dog, uh, you know, or they're not going to invade my home. I'm not going to invade theirs. Uh, and so what's going on here? Uh, and so that, that kind of got me thinking differently, uh, got me thinking in a more grown up, subtle, nuanced, uh, way of approaching politics. Right. You mentioned James Bond. I remember, uh, it was probably the, maybe the eighties, maybe the early nineties. There was a time in the James Bond movies when the, when the Russians, the Soviets were, uh, they were always very depicted as these, they had this incredible technology, incredibly competent. Do you, do you sort of remember this era? And, sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I remember, I forget who it was. It might've been some British politician who was sort of complaining, like, why are we portraying them this way? We should be portraying them as like, you know, as just backwards Huns or something. And, and, but it, it, it did sort of seem to sort of feed into, I mean, there was a whole space program era where, you know, they were kind of kicking our butts for a, a while and, and you could sort of see them as being much more technologically superior, but it was weird in that, 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 that came around. Uh, yeah. Well, it, yeah. I mean, the, the, the tank, the kind of tank I served on M60 A1, um, it was certainly not built for comfort. <laughs> it was easy to make comfortable. You know, the, the, the seats were padded. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the, 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 they had heaters in internal heaters in them. So in the winter you didn't freeze. Right. Um, and they were kind of roomy inside. And I've seen, and we, we were shown pictures, you know, because, uh, one of my favorite expressions that they always that they always hit us with in training was "Know the enemy; he knows you." Uh, and they would have these posters and things, and and uh, somebody I, I don't know. And S two Intelligence one time brought by a a T seventy two tank that they probably captured, that the Israelis probably captured from the Syrians or the Egyptians and then gave it to the Americans who then sent it around for, for, for people to look at. Uh, and I remember climbing on top of this thing and it felt tiny, it felt cramped inside. The gunner's seat in, in one of these things was not really a seat. It was a leather strap. <laughs> Like, you know, one of those old fashioned barber straps that the guy would use to sharpen his, you know, blade before he gave you a shave. Right. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's designed this way because they don't expect these things to survive. Mm-hmm. Don't expect the men to survive. Uh, our side at least made an effort <laughs> for these things to be a little bit comfortable. Uh, and I thought, you know, this, th- these things are not really well designed. Um, the M60 had a turret floor, which was a floor under the turret, which turned as the turret turned. So the loader who's got to stand there and throw these huge, heavy shells into the gun breech could just stand there. And as the turret turned, he turned with the turret because the whole thing is turning as one, as one part. In the Soviet tanks, there's no turret floor. And so the poor loader who's holding this round, which probably weighs about 100 pounds, 
is going to sort of shimmy along as the turret turns to, to, to keep lined up with the gun breach to be able to put this shell in. And I thought, you know, it's exhausting enough doing this where you don't have to dance around inside this turret. Imagine these poor guys having to do this and they have to – because you couldn't – you could stand up inside an M60 turret. Uh, I'm 5'11", and I could stand up in it, and my head didn't hit. It was a little, couple of inches short, but my head didn't hit. In the T-72, you could not – if you stood up in the lotus position, your head – you know, your head and neck were out of the turret. So you had to crouch over. Uh, and so you're crouched over holding this round in your hand. Uh, and so I thought you'd, you'd be exhausted after a couple of minutes. Um, and so I thought, boy, this is not real. This stuff isn't really well designed. Their, their Jeeps were like these farty little bugs, um, you know, and the, the, the equipment just seemed, uh, you know, and, and we now know even on their most sophisticated stuff, <laughs> like a nuclear submarine. These things were death traps for the people who operated them. You know, forget who they're going to fire missiles at. These poor guys were being – more Russian sailors died at the hands of their own vessels than died from NATO action. Uh, and I – you know, and I could imagine when I – first time I went inside a T-72's turret, I heard – I'm sure a lot of Russian tankers have missing fingers – you know, or missing toes from getting their fingers caught in the turret ring, which is a huge gear that you know the thing turns around. Uh, and and you know we didn't we didn't have that. And um, you know the M60 was a good vehicle. Uh, it it doesn't seem so today if you compare it to an M1. Right. Uh, you know because the the M60 the, the was basically the last American tank. It was basically World War II technology taken as far as it could go. So the M60 was basically the last of the Super Shermans. Uh, you know, my uh, my uncle Mike served in World War II, uh, and he had tank experience, and he probably could have climbed into my tank and figured out how to work it in like five minutes because it would have seemed familiar. Uh, today, if you put me inside the turret of an M1, <clears throat> I'm not sure I could operate it. You know, because there's a lot of computers, and, and and rightly so, we would hope that by now the 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 technology has advanced that far. But I don't know if I would be able to just jump in an M1 and be able to work it. Um, so you know, it was uh, you it, it it was the MCU could live on it. You know, the crew could could f- make it work so that you could live in relative comfort. Because, like I said, we when we went on our exercises. Uh, we were out for two, usually two weeks, but sometimes three weeks, you know, and we had tents with us, but we never used them. Mm-hmm. It was just too much trouble to set up a tent. Uh, it was, so you lived in, you slept inside the vehicle, you know, you did everything in the vehicle. Um, if you had to go to the bathroom, you, you know, you kept an extra 50 caliber machine gun box empty. Uh, in case you couldn't, in case you were road marching, you know you couldn't get out. Uh, you could climb, or if you were stationary somewhere, you could climb out and go behind a tree or something. Um, if you were road marching, 
you know, and you you really had to go. You you could climb out of the tank and stand on the on the on the sponson box, which was sort of like the fender, as the as the battalion is road marching down an autobahn at twenty five miles an hour. And the M sixties still had these things on them called grunt rails, uh, from the old expression of grunt being an infantryman, uh, because at the time it was still thought that uh, when we went off to fight Armageddon. Uh, uh, the infantry and armor would hook up. And so we'd have like a dozen infantrymen hanging on to the outside of the tank as we roared off into oblivion. And so the, the, the tank had this railing uh, welded uh, around it. And because that's where the infantrymen were meant to hold on for their dear lives. So we called them grunt rails. And so you'd be road marching down the Autobahn. If you had a pee, you'd stand, you'd climb out, uh, you know, and you'd stand on the on the sponsor box. You'd hold on to the grunt rail with one hand and hold on to yourself with your other hand and just pee off the side of the vehicle. Uh, you know, and there's traffic because you're on the highway. You know, so there's there's tr- civilian traffic is flying by and people are looking at you and you're like, hey, hello. <laughs> Did you ever feel like um, in when you're in your tank just hanging up everywhere you could those uh, you know those little uh, pine tree uh, car air fresheners you hang from your, your you know that's a good I, I never did think to do that you probably should have yeah I'm just thinking if, if people are inside the tank taking a dump in an ammo box I'm thinking you yeah. know Airwick sure well and, you know and then of course you'd get rid of it as soon as you, you as soon as you had a chance but but still yeah and I mean even without that you know you got four guys living <laughs> this thing metal box uh, for two maybe three weeks and you know we had we had water with us, and so you could walk, but you couldn't take showers or, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, or, or anything like that. You just sort of splashed water on yourself, uh, and uh, that's how you sort of kept clean for the whole time. And then when you got back, you went and showered for forty five minutes, and uh, <laughs> you got on with your life. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right, we we should we should we should we should wrap up. Okay. Uh, so so uh, I always my final question is always that if somebody you're at some skeptical conference uh, and then I, somebody's like Brian Regal, where do I know that name from? Oh, I heard you on the Conspiracy Skeptic. It was very entertaining. Let me buy you a drink. What uh, what what should what should the person buy you? Oh, I'm a I'm a beer man. All right. Uh, I. Um... It took me a while to really start consuming alcohol Um, in part because my parents were borderline alcoholics. So that you either become an alcoholic or you go the other way. Yes. Yes. Um, And, and, and they eventually, they, they eventually, uh, you know, got better. Uh, but I didn't really, you know, in high school, it's a rite of passage to get go out and get drunk with your friends and, right. you know, almost get killed in a car wreck and all that. Um, but uh, I, I didn't really start to consume alcohol until I got to Germany. Yeah. yeah. I, I German beer. Would. Yes, yes. And I thought, wow, this – where has this been all my life? Uh, because, you know, I – the world I grew up in, I grew up in the Ironbound section of Newark and then Kearney, New Jersey. And so the beer was all Schlitz yeah. and Rheingold, um, very hop-heavy beer with very distinctive smell, which I didn't care for as a kid. Um, 
And then I discovered German beer. I was like, wow, this is actually really good. And then I discovered English beer, oh. uh, which, uh, you know, which is even better. I discovered, you know, old speckled hen and <laughs> locally made locally in doom bar and some of the others. So that's what I would ask for. Right. Uh, very nice. All right, then. Okay. All right. So, uh, so some of your books, I just want to just re- remind people, uh, currently uh available so so the secret history of the jersey devil and again if you've not listened to your appearance on monster talk and uh squaring the strange seek these two uh, these two podcasts out because you're you're what you discovered and how the jersey devil legend emerged and by the book Yes, and buy the book too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Listen's uh, mission. Buy yes, the book. Yeah, yes, and then uh, searching for Sasquatch, uh, crackpots, eggheads, and cryptozoology. I won't go through your entire list, but but those are your two most recent books. You do have another one, as you say, coming out. Right, it's supposed to be out sometime this year uh, on on uh, various myths and legends about who really discovered America. Great, great. Yeah, in 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 press, as as they say, and uh, and we. And you know, as I am now a skeptical author, my my book, the uh, the skeptics book of lists. If you were, I, you were probably old enough to remember the book of lists. Did you ever encounter? Oh, this? sure. Yeah, yeah. So that was my inspiration, and uh, and uh, yeah. So, but yeah, you you don't get rich writing these kinds of books. Right? No, no. I'm 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 lucky to have a, a faculty position. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I'm lucky to have a day job. Yes. Yes. But as I as I as I repeat again and again, uh, you know, if I can make enough from this book to pay for my next oil change, I like mission accomplished. Sure. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get giddy when I get a royalty check for like sixty bucks. Yes. I, yeah. To- totally. Yeah. When my my wife is she's in an all girl. Uh, punk band or all woman punk band as we may say today but uh they 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 one of their songs was in a canadian movie so we're really lowering the bar here but uh yeah so she gets a she gets a royalty check like once a year and yeah it is like yeah for a dollar 23 yeah it's like uh, it's like look i got 60 bucks as a royalty check tonight we drink wine from a bottle i i know yes but as i always say if you're only going to buy one book this year, please buy The Secret History of the Jersey Devil or Brian's new book. But if you're going to buy two books, then please cons- consider sure. consider. And if you go if you go online, if you Google my name, you'll get my Kane University webpage, right, yes. webpage, and on there is uh, links yes. to dozens of my podcasts that you can listen to for free. Uh, there are links to op eds. I've written tons of op eds. Uh, on controversial topics over the years that I get screamed at about, uh, you know, and, and I'm on, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Tarbosaur is my handle, T-A-R-B-O-S-A-U-R. And, uh, there we are. Yeah. I, and I will put links to all of this in the, uh, show notes on yrad.com forward slash CS for the conspiracy skeptic site. All right. Okay. Thank thank you. Thank you so much, Brian, for my uh, pleasure. uh, Okay, great. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Great. Great.
you win.